Welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast channel. This is a recording of one of Grattan's public events. Good evening, and welcome to State Library Victoria. My name is Sarah Slade, and I'm the director of the project management office here at the State Library. Before we commence, I'd like to acknowledge that this evening's event is being held on the homelands of the Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation, and I wish to acknowledge them as the traditional owners and to pay my respects to their elders, past and present, along with the elders of other communities who may be here today. It's my great pleasure to welcome you to the policy pitch presented by Grattan Institute and State Library Victoria. I'd particularly like to welcome the speakers this evening, John Daly and Madeline Morris, Grattan Institute members and friends of the library, as well as all of you. We're delighted to partner with Grattan Institute to present this series, which we've worked on together since 2014. The library and the Grattan Institute have much in common. The library's aim to provide public with access to knowledge and Grattan Institute's focus on practical solutions to Australia's most pressing problems both support the development of a civil and prosperous community. Always topical in the series this year, we've covered issues from Melbourne's population growth and innovation policy to traffic congestion. Whatever the topic, we've seen engaged audiences all year long, and I'm sure that's the case tonight. We look forward to seeing many of you next year as we continue to present intriguing and challenging discussions. We also hope to see you at the many other events and programs we offer here at the library. And to find out more, as always, please keep an eye on our What's On website pages as there's always much to do. But now to our discussion this evening. Grattan Institute, in partnership with Readings Bookstore, are launching this year's annual Summer Reading List for the Prime Minister. The list includes books and articles that play a critical intervention into Australia's public debates and is a must read, not only for the Prime Minister, but for all Australians. It comprises a great selection of reading material for the holidays, and I look forward, as I'm sure you do, to hearing more about it soon. And with that in mind, I'm very pleased to introduce our speakers this evening. Madeline Morris is a Melbourne-based senior journalist for 7.30 and a regular fill-in host of ABC News Breakfast. For over a decade, she was based in London as a reporter and presenter for the BBC, where she reported from more than 20 countries, including working as Washington correspondent. She's the author of Parenting Guide, Guilt-Free Bottle Feeding, While Your Formula-Fed Baby Can Be Happy, Healthy and Smart. Which is great, as my baby was bottle-fed, so Thank I like you. it. <laughs> happy, uh, healthy, healthy and smart. He I is, guess. yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm biased, but I would say so. <laughs> John Daly has been CEO of the Grattan Institute since it was founded eight years ago. He has published extensively on economic reform priorities, budget policy, tax reform, housing affordability and generational inequality. He's worked at the University of Oxford, the Victorian Department of Premier and Cabinet, consulting firm McKinsey & Co and ANZ Bank in fields including law, public policy, strategy and finance. And now I'm going to pass over to Madeline, but please join me in welcoming our speakers tonight. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you very much for that lovely introduction. And that's a note to self, never have my CV next to John Daly's ever again. <laughs> that is, I will not be making that mistake if we ever do that again. Um, it's delightful to, to have you all here this evening. And thank you very much for giving up um, what is a, a burgeoning summer's evening. Um, thank goodness. But this is so great to have so many books already laid out for you isn't it so i hope that you've all grabbed the uh the guide at the entrance this is a this is a fantastic um list of books here um which is i have plowed my way through uh and i say plow because there's some fairly heavy tomes in there but they are all must read books um 
and they have been a joy to actually get through. So first of all, I should say thank you to you, John, for having me along because otherwise I would not have broken out of my Leanne Moriarty funk, which I'm currently <laughs> in. I'm not, I'm not ashamed to admit at the moment. No, no Leanne Moriarty on the list, John? No, I'm afraid not, although it's not a bad idea. Yes, I think that we could. So listen, this is you've been doing this for a couple of years now. So This is number 10. <coughs> number 10? Yeah, you're very special. You're here for the 10th anniversary of the Prime Minister's reading list. Um, now... It started off what? That was, so that would have been what? Seventeen prime ministers ago? Uh, yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and do you, have you had any feedback from the previous prime ministers about how many they read? We have had feedback from them. So we do, in fact, physically send the books to the Prime Minister. Usually they, or I suspect more accurately, their office writes back a sort of polite thank you very much. Um, uh, a number of prime ministers, it's become more traditional for them to reveal their, their reading matter over the holidays. A number of them have nominated at least one of the books that was on our list, but whether that was correlation or causation is always hard to know. <laughs> so, look, I mean, let's not kid ourselves. Frankly, it would be a bloody miracle if they read all of these books over the holidays because there's some serious books in there. There are some serious books, but if you had a week off, I reckon you could make it through the lot. <laughs> Not sure how many hours in your day you have, John, but... Well, uh... it, depends how you me- it depends how you measure a holiday. There are, of course, people who measure <laughs> holidays in feet, i.e. the feet of books that they get through. I'm sure that you're, you're one of these people. But look, it, it's, uh, what's great about this, this group of uh, books that you have is that they're very diverse. Um, there's some great Australian authors in there, um, some very really interesting authors from overseas as well. Uh, do you want to start off by by kicking off with the first book? Well, well maybe just talk about how we pick them first. Oh, yes, of course. Please do. So um, uh, the process <coughs> appears to have got more and more elaborate over the years at Grattan Institute. It's the Grattan Institute staff trying to find more and more elaborate ways to create a process which doesn't ultimately uh, end in John likes this one, not that one. Um, uh, so this year it's kind of got to the point that there is now a thing called the Malvina Place Review of Books, uh, a regular newsletter that goes out to talk about all of the books that might be on the newsletter because Malvina Place is um, the location of Grattan Institute. It's just a tiny little street um, that runs off Grattan Street uh, and that advertises all of the books um, that we might put on. Uh, vast numbers of Grattan Institute staff volunteer to read at you know, read them. Uh, usually they get gonged out very quickly because we're looking for things which are all of say something to power, are really, really well written. If it's badly written, it doesn't matter how worthy it is, it goes. And then, of course, we're looking for a list which, um, as you say, has a variety of different things. Mm, yeah. So we try and pick them and then we put them together. And um, do you have book club where you have wine and cheese and you talk about them? We do have book club and we have wine and cheese and and ham and lots of other things and it usually goes for quite a long time. I can only imagine. <laughs> and you have read all of these books? I'm I'm of course I have. Of course you have and have, I, have have you read all of these I have books? read <laughs> I have read all of the books most of them. I've no I've read all of the books but um not all of all of the books, if you know what I mean. There's a few. There's a few. There, there was like the slight matter of the state election, uh, which I and then today I've been doing the last two. Um, I've been very deep in gangland for the last two days, so it's been a complete delight to come here to your, to talk to you. Um, but how many of these were your choice before we before we kick in? Well, ultimately, all of them are my choice. Right. But I can talk to you about the first one, I actually. Not, I might ask some of the Grattan Institute staff, actually, about, actually, about the... Seeing that's as a this, really good introduction to the first one. Yeah. So, um, so as we will talk about this evening, um, pretty much all of these books fall into genres. It's actually quite interesting how many of the books this year um, are almost representative of any number of other books published on the same topic. So this year there is a genre which is called The World Isn't As Bad As You Think It Is. Uh, so we went through all of the books that fall into that genre, uh, and there was actually a really good one, which I thought was particularly fantastic, um, called Enlightenment Now by Steven Pinker. Only I was told by someone at Grattan that it was a book that only appealed to people who thought that they were the smartest person in the room. <laughs> so given that, it was impossible to put it on the list. <laughs> uh, and so it didn't make the cut. Um, although it is a, it's another take on this question about 
is the world as bad as we think it is? Mm. So we picked this one instead. So this is written by Hans Rosling. Um, I guess by profession, he's effectively a third world medicine expert would be, you know, how he would probably not describe himself. Yes, but, he wouldn't but describe himself that way. No, he, he certainly wouldn't use, wouldn't use the term third world. He certainly wouldn't use that term. Um, but uh, it's trying to both talk about how the world is better than most people think it is and also a little bit about why it's better. And he starts by a pop quiz, um, which he has apparently administered literally thousands of times to any number of audiences to see how well they do. Um, so we'll just randomly pick one of these, and I should add that none of the Grattan staff are allowed to vote, including the interns. Um, so uh, people, um, how many people in the world have some access to electricity? You have three possible options, 20%, 50% or 80%. So hands up, how many people think that 20% of the world have access to electricity? Uh, no, have, yeah, have some access to electricity, thank you. How many people think that 50% have some access to electricity? And how many 80%? Well, this is an unusual audience. They it got is. that one right. They did, They'd... because the answer is 80%. Um, and I think most of you, or more of you, said 80%. Yeah, than, I think yeah. that's that's an unusual audience. It is. Um, so most audiences get this very badly wrong. I'm suspecting there's a few more people who've been cheating and reading the kind of <laughs> the, the blurbs. So he starts off by talking about that. But then I think one of the other things that's really useful about this book is the way that he brings us back to a really basic understanding of what it means to be rich and what it means to be poor. And so what it means to be poor, really poor, is that you have to walk for several hours each day to get water. And the reality is there's a substantial portion of the world's population that have to do that. But what he also does in this book is he actually tries to downplay the number, the substantial number, and says his main message is, look, there's still a substantial number, but actually there's a lot fewer than there used to be. Yeah. Which may be true, but still doesn't mean that it's not really bad for that very large substantial number, I think a billion people or so, yeah. who still live on those uh, be below that extreme poverty. Yeah. And um, he argues as well that we should not – divide the world up into first world, third world, developed, developing, but rather that we should have four categories of wealth, doesn't yeah, he? That's, that's right. Yeah. And, and so the second one, so those are people who don't spend more than half an hour each day going to get water. Uh, they're people who do have a gas stove. They probably do have a pretty basic mattress. Um, and if they had an illness, they'd probably have to sell everything, but they would be able to do that and they would probably survive. And his point is, that sounds pretty bad, but it's a lot better than level one, the first one I described, where you walk several hours a day to get water. If you get sick, basically, it's all over. Um, and his point is that an enormous number of people have gone from that first level to that second level really in just the last couple of decades. And then if you look at level three, um, which is where you probably, you know, have a tap um, and you probably can save up to get a motorcycle. Uh, and if you get ill, then you'll almost certainly have money to buy medicine. And that may well mean that you don't have so much money to educate your kids, but you're not going to die. Um, and again, a huge number of people have moved from level two to level three. Now, we think about level three. You know, crikey, is he saying you're really, really lucky if you have a motorbike? And it's kind of, yes, but remember, that's a lot better than level two. Mm. <laughs> so here's my problem with this book, right? So I enjoy the book, but when I was at the BBC, I was the developing world correspondent. So I spent a lot of time in developing countries reporting on basically how shit life is. And for a lot of people living in developing countries, life really is pretty shit still. And his point is, yeah, but it's getting better. And my point is, that doesn't mean that it's any good. And he and he makes the argument that because we're improving, we, um, you know, we, we should be happy about that. We should be positive about that. But then, you know, you make the, the point about someone who um, 
has to sell everything and they'll probably survive. Case in point, I had an email from a friend of mine in Zambia whose husband died last year, um, who has three daughters and she is saying, I would really love for my daughter, she's a trained social worker, has always had a job, um, has uh, three daughters who she'd love to start school and she said, since my husband died, um, I've had to move back in with my parents and I've lost my job, is there any way that you can help me? And this is, for me, a really case, in, a, a very strong case in point about, you know, why we shouldn't be too happy about this book. Oh, and, and I think he's quite explicit. We shouldn't be happy. We should not be content. But his point would be, I think, to you, so the levels, the standard of living that you see in Zambia today is the same as the standard of living, both in terms of income and wealth, uh, sorry, income and um, life expectancy, that Sweden, his country, obviously oh. a highly developed country today, had in 1920. I mean, there are still lots of people alive in Sweden today who were born in 1920. Yeah. And, and their lives have gone from Zambia to Sweden within a single lifetime. And that's and that is a va very valuable point to make. You know, when you're feeling gloomy about it. But it's in, it's interesting. I told my um, Norwegian brother-in-law that I was reading this book, and he said, "Oh, so here's this educated man who's going to make you feel. He's going to shower lots of facts on you, and he's going to make you feel very uh, as though he's showered lots of facts on though, as you should feel better because he's so." manly and factful and <laughs> <laughs> this could be a little bit of Norwegian Swedish rivalry let's not let's not discount that because that is quite strong but it was interesting as I was reading this um, I think possibly because I have had personal experience um, of, a, of a lot of developing countries it didn't make me feel that good and and I having said that I think it would be a useful book for the Prime Minister to read because <laughs> he probably hasn't had that experience. And um, I think that learning about the reality and about the, the daily life of people who, um, to quote another minister, are going to be underwater soon would probably be uh, a good thing to do. I think that's right. But I think it's, a, it's important for another reason. Um, and it's important because it slightly begs the question about, well... If lives have got that much better, how did that happen and why don't we kind of talk about it? And his point is, look, it doesn't make news because almost all the things that mean that you go from being Sweden in Zambia today to Sweden today um, within, a, within a single lifetime are boring things. That's true. He, that, he gives journos <laughs> a really big serve, which is, which is fair enough, actually. Must be, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it now is. Now we know why. <laughs> it, it is fair enough. But um, interestingly, he points out, just before we move on, um, he talks about the series of instincts that we have. He talks yeah. about the gap instinct, the negativity instinct, the fear instinct, our, our, our propensity to feel fear, um, our propensity to be negative, our propensity to blame other people, the blame instinct. And, and what he's trying to do is basically um, fact-based psychology to get us to think about, to recognise that. It's kind of like CBT um, using for, for um, global development. To think about how we have recognise our, our failings and our foibles and so then we can actively work against them, which I think is a, is a valuable thing to do. Um, but back, going back to the journo thing, he, he at the end, I did notice, I was happy to hear that um, his message is it's not up to journos not to tell the bad news, it's up to the media consumers to wise up. Yeah. So it's not my so, fault. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think there's, there's two other things that I think I, you can take away from this book. One is that business of getting the facts actually makes a real difference. Mm. And he, he gives us a lovely example. Um, and, and to understand which facts do you need to worry about and which facts not. Um, so he gives a lovely example about the Ebola virus. Uh, and as a you know, public health official, he saw some of the early data coming in on Ebola and he knew they had a problem because you were seeing essentially the number of, of deaths from Ebola going up in geometric series. Uh, and as anyone knows who's done any work in epidemiology, you see that pattern and you hit the very big panic button. Uh, and then, as he pointed out, the issue was that when you also looked into the data a little while, so they, you know, he and many others jumped on it because they saw that particular pattern and they knew what it meant. And then, as he was working on it, it became apparent to him that although the number of suspected cases was still going up, in that sort of geometric way, the number of actual deaths wasn't gone flat, started to decline. 
And of course, what that meant for somebody who really cares about the data is we have moved into a new phase of this disease in which we you know, are probably starting to get on top of this thing and therefore we need to reallocate resources. So his point is that business of getting the data is one of the reasons why you go from one to another. And the other thing that I think you can really take away from this book um, is the way that he does have all of these stories about his life. Which is beautiful. This, yeah. So my favourite of these is so he's in deepest, you know, wherever it is, and he gets told, um, so, you know, here is the, um, you know, piece de resistance of the dinner, and it's larvae grubs. And as he says, he's eaten pretty much everything in Africa. And he was just looking at it and thinking, I can't do this. What am I going to do? And then he's hit by inspiration. And he says, can you just bring me a map? And he said, to your point about Scandinavian issues, <laughs> uh, he said, said, see this map? He said, we come from Sweden. See over the, over the, over the uh, water there? That's Denmark. In Denmark... They do eat larvae. But in Sweden, it's culturally really bad to eat larvae, so I'm sorry I can't. Which was brilliant. And his, and his companion was from Denmark and, and was scoffing and was scoffing the larvae. How's that as a brilliant way to get out of not liking something that? So just remember that for next time. Sorry. And my tribe... My tribe. I think he used the word "my tribe." Uh, it, we we just don't eat that, and and they all understood that, which was a really beautiful thing. I thought. But don't tell your children. <laughs> yes, yes. Don't use that one. So this was the book that was supposed to make us happy. Yeah. Now you've got the book that's going to make us very sad. Yes. So the next genre for this year, and I might add, it's unfortunately a rather larger list uh, than the former genre uh, we've just talked about is. Books about why the world is going to hell in a handbasket, um, and particularly democracy is going to hell in a handbasket. I actually spent um, last Friday at the uh, 30th anniversary for the Centre for Comparative Constitutional Studies, uh, and all of the country's senior constitutional lawyers were talking about how the world is going to hell in a handbasket, and in particular democracy, and that's what this book is about. Um, why is it, uh, it's The People Versus Democracy by Yasha Munk, who's a political theorist and scientist from the United States. Uh, like all of these books, he starts with the you know, observation that the world seems to be a less happy place than it has been, at least in terms of the way that our democracies are working. And, and I think one of the key reasons why there are a lot more political scientists and theorists working on this than there were, say, 10 years ago, is that 10 years ago there was, as he points out, a kind of consensus in the political science literature that if a country made it to an income of about $16,000 per capita and it was a functioning democracy, it would always remain a functioning democracy. And the reason why that was a rule of thumb was that in the last 2,000 years of history, there's never been a counterexample. Um, so you should always be careful about arguing from induction and, and the, the last eight years have proven that. So we've had countries like Hungary, like Poland, like Turkey, places that appear to have a pretty functioning, robust democracy that has essentially ceased to be so. And, of course, the starting question for the book is, well, why is that? And then, of course, the more interesting question in many ways for policy wonks is, and what should we do about it? Mm. And his... his <laughs> The sort of the central point, as as you say, he talks a lot about liberalism and democracy, which he describes as the two core tenets of our system. And we had always assumed up until this point that the two went naturally together. But he is talking about how, due to a number of forces, the two are splitting. So we're getting illiberal democracy and what's the opposite of that? Liberal Non-democracy. Non-democracy. <laughs> liberal non-democracy. So he's talking about liberal non-democracies and, and in that he talks about the rise of the power of lobbyists. He talks about the rise of uh, the bureaucracy. He, Because he's German, he gives a really um, non-US, non-Anglo-centric view of the world, which is really great actually, isn't it? Because he, he gives lots of European examples, which makes a nice change, even though he's a, he's a Harvard political scientist. So he talks about the, the growth of... Um, I, I'm going to get myself, myself confused now. He talks about the, the growth of um, undemocratic liberalism <clears throat> and also 
illiberal democracy, which is, in his example, is the United States. And it's amazing reading these examples of how that's happening because it's like it's like happening in real time. Yeah. So so he talks about, you know, the, how, first of all, how autocrats get to power. The first thing that they do while they're getting into power is they disparage their opponents and they tell lies about them. And then they, then they get into power. And then they start talking about... Uh, disparaging the pillars, the uh, the institutions, judiciary. Case in point: President Trump tweeting about the um, Supreme Court, uh, the oh, media, and, and Brexit. If you think about the way the Telegraph talked about judges who absolutely. You know, Issued a ruling, and they said, you know, essentially they should go. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and he gives that he gives that example as well. And then, you know, we had the whole Jim Acosta thing with with CNN and the attacks on CNN as well. And it, it's like we're actually living in a. And he what he does is points out beautifully um, the theory actually coming into practice in this particular time. Um, and. He also uses the examples of Poland and Hungary um, and, and also Greece and how Greece got to the stage that it is now, which is which is great because it sort of expands. He doesn't talk about Australia, which I think um, was interesting and you wouldn't expect him to, but many of the lessons, it feels like he lays out beautifully why those countries that we are talking about are bellwethers and warnings um, for us. And a couple of fun facts from his book. So I, I, this I found it absolutely extraordinary. Um, so in research that he has done and been backed up by other, um, other research, only 30% of 30-year-old US citizens think that living in a democracy is important. 30%. In the US, one-sixth of people favour military rule. Can you actually believe that? I mean, how is that even possible? And he also gives an Australian statistic, which I found quite useful. Um, people born in the 1980s are half as likely to value democracy as people born in the 1930s. And he lays out very well why those people who are closer to having lived experience of fascism um, and communism were obviously much more likely to value their democracy. Yeah. Yeah, I, so the thing I loved about this, and you've sort of touched on this, is the way that he kind of draws out the patterns. And, you know, history may not repeat itself, but it does rhyme, and he kind of shows you all of those rhymes, and particularly the way that many democracies have acquired a whole series of liberal institutions that are things that ultimately curtail the power of the masses, mm. um, that, and that there's a common pattern for, for demagogues to come to power on a popular wave, essentially promising to undo a lot of those um, institutions. And, and the, one of the patterns that he identified that I guess I hadn't quite put together was he said, look, if, if you want to come to power as a demagogue, then by definition you have to say there's a whole pile of things out there that you don't like that can be fixed and can be fixed easily. Easily, yes. But of course, as soon as you're in power then you're going to have to deal with the fact that most of those things, in fact, can't be fixed easily. And then you have to explain that. And so what you do is that you say, well, the reason I can't fix them is that there's all of these institutions in the way, and if I can only get rid of them, uh, then, you know, my very simple common sense solutions could be implemented. And so almost the first thing that most demagogues do is to start essentially attacking those institutions, blaming them for all of the woes of the people so that the people don't blame the person that they've just elected. They start undermining all of those institutions. Uh, and, of course, as he points out, you can start with something that, that is a reaction to, an sorry, to a liberal non-democracy. It may well start off as being a relatively illiberal democracy. It usually becomes an illiberal autocracy mm. very quickly. And, and it remains an open question as to whether those illiberal autocracies will revert back to democratic type or not. And the reason it's an open question is we've kind of only had sort of eight or ten years of history of this stuff and we're living through it. And his point is we are living in a different time. He's got a lovely reference in this book to the concept of um, uh, chronocentricity. Yes. The belief that you live in a special time. Uh, and, of course, you know, all those boomers like to believe that they lived in a special time when they were young, and maybe it was true. Um, but I think 
you know, the, the number of books being published on this subject literally in the last 12 months is an indication that maybe this time is a little bit different, at least for students of political theory, um, and that we should really think about that. And then, of course, the other great thing about the book is he says, well, this is what I reckon we should do about it. Yeah. Yeah, which all seem like quite common sense solutions. Um, he domesticating nationalism is one of them um, rather than rejecting and he makes a beautiful case for why the left has gone too far in uh, its rejection of nationalism and it's very convincing the way that the way that he talks about that and he talks about how actually nationalism although they are although nationalism and the nation state is actually a creation of the elite in his view which is something I'd never really thought about before, um, pre, you know, naturally we congregate in small groups, in families, in tribes, in people of 150 people. So he, the concept of a nation is a is a, um, is a relatively new uh, concept, which is effectively for governments, so that elites can control and and organise people. So he talks about um, domesticating nationalism so that we can make it work for us. Then just the other simple stuff, though, is he talks about fixing the economy. And the stuff that he talks about is um, very helpfully all of the things that Grattan actually writes about, <laughs> such, as, such as restructuring tax and um, solving the housing crisis and building better cities. But it's, I think it's actually a measure of how cynical as a, as a um, perhaps it's just me being a journalist, but um, I think probably as a, as a group of people, to a certain extent, we've become that all of the stuff that he lays out as solutions, I just naturally thought, well, that's never going to happen. <laughs> yeah, and, and in particular, you know, I think one of the toughest ones is this business that, uh, the way that so much has been tied up by lobby groups, and it has become harder and harder in a lot of these democracies for, or so-called democracies, for um, uh, sensible policy change to happen if it's opposed by powerful vested interests, um, and that it's precisely that perception, and there's a bit of a reality to it, that powerful vested interests are stopping sensible um, policy reform uh, that is indeed one of the root causes. And I, you know, I think there's a tendency to say, oh, look, you know, all this stuff about... Um, you know, the, the democratic process and the way that money buys you influence and the way that, um, you know, donations are kind of influencing the course of politics. You know, isn't that a fringe issue? And I think his point is, actually, no, it's not a fringe issue. It's actually a really, really important issue. And certainly in the US, I think so more than in Australia at this point in time. I mean, certainly much more obvious when you have $3 billion or $6 billion elections or whatever that is, where Citizens United means that a company is actually a person for the purposes of funding elections. I feel like that's a very um, uh, more of an issue in the US. I think we can be, as, as the head of an institute that published a paper this year called a Who's in the Room? Access and, and, and Power in Australian Politics, um, uh, I think we can be a little complacent about that. I mean, it's worth remembering that I'm not suggesting for a moment that the United States doesn't have very substantial problems on that score, but, you know, they have better, they have better donation disclosures than we do. They certainly have that's true. much more timely disclosure yes, than we do. They have much true. better regulation of lobbying than we do. Again, I'm not suggesting that these things are the you know, complete solutions, but they would certainly help and there are plenty of things that we could do a lot better. To go back to your point about hands, we should never just say, well, it's kind of, you know, it's better than it was. We need to say we could do a lot better. I just wanted to, before we move on, I just wanted to point out his third solution, actually, for um, uh, for democracy was renewing civic faith. And as part of that, he suggests that we should all learn about the value of Western democracy, <laughs> which has been quite the controversial issue in <laughs> Australia, as we all know. Um, but he makes a really good case for it, actually. And, and he, says, um, he says here... Uh, David Brooks, Brooks put the point in a recent column, the history of Western civilization should be taught in a confidently progressive manner. There were certain great figures like Socrates, Erasmus uh, and Rousseau who helped fitfully propel the nations to higher reaches of the humanistic ideal. And he, he makes a very um, um, convincing case for why uh, in our rush to accept other cultures, we should 
not forget our own and forget about the values of our own. Why should we should not be too prescriptive about what um, what our culture does and what other cultures do? How the essentially great democracies are built on a melting pot, um, and that we need to be open to not only to other cultures but also to other cultures um, uh, absorbing our ideas as well. And I thought that he wrote about that in a really eloquent way and in a way which I hadn't seen written about before. Well, I think that's right. And I think one of the things that ties these two books together is that they're both trying to talk in some ways about how do we deal with imperfection? You know, Rousseau had all sorts of terrible things in his private life. One way of reacting to that is to say, oh, well, we should just kind of like forget about anything he said. Another way of reacting to that is to say, well, look, those things are bad, but there are nevertheless some good things we can take away from that and we wouldn't want to throw out the good things just because they happened historically to have been associated with a bunch of bad things. Yep. It's exactly the same point that Hans Rosling is making. Yeah, um, like baby, it's cold outside. Yeah. <laughs> are you aware of that? Are you aware of that? The, the issues around that? Yeah. You know, the song and how they're talking about, and how it's been banned on, on radio. You know, th- it, it's, a, it's a living example of those sorts of things. And I think this, this book is great at dealing with things which are actually issues which are cropping up on a daily basis and questions that we need to wrestle with on a daily basis. So, what's what next? Is it? The next one uh, is rusted oh, we off. Oh, we are running out of time. Rusted off by Gabrielle Chan. What did you think of this? I adored this book and every single person <laughs> in this room needs to read this book. Who here um, has lived in a rural area? Okay. So, for you, this book will be a beautiful crystallization of everything that you know about the country and everything that annoys you about (laughs) politicians and the city's approach to the country. Um, So Gabrielle Chan is a, um, she's a, she was a political journalist. She writes for The Guardian currently. Um, she was a press gallery journalist for in New South Wales for a long time. Then she met and fell in love with a farmer. And she moved to a country town where she raised children. She's also half Singaporean Chinese. So she has this interesting um, dynamic of being um, one of the very few non-white people in, uh, in her new country town. She was she grew up in Sydney, in inner city suburban Sydney, and then moved to this um, farm. So she has a a a, a very unique, um, incredibly insightful view on the things that the city that City Australia gets wrong about the country, and it's a lot. Yeah, um, um, she she. Uh, I'm afraid she's another one who's kind of got it in for journalists. She does. Everyone <laughs> has it in for journalists. Um, so uh, she um, uh, opens with a lovely comment about um, journalists who are um, more frightened of spiders than stereotypes. Uh, and she talks about the way that many city journalists stereotype the country. And I think a lot of the book is about trying to unpack. So what is it? that is in fact different about country Australia relative to city Australia. You know, there's the, there's the, the lifestyle things, the fact that apricots actually taste of apricot. Um, there's a, an extended dis- discussion about class, not a subject we talk about very much in Australia, but the way that in cities people actually don't interact that much with people from different social classes, people with radically different levels of education and income probably don't know very many in a city. Whereas in a regional town of, you know, well, in her case, you know, a couple of hundred people or even 5,000 people, which is by regional standards, you know, a reasonably large town, um, you will know a bunch of people who have quite a different income to you. We've got a very different level of education and that creates quite different social dynamic. Mm. And she talks a lot... brought up class there she talked she not only has an in for journalists she also has an in for the national party a little bit (laughs) and she talks about how the national party has singularly failed particularly in recent times to represent the views of all of country australia how it basically represents a certain tranche of um wealthy uh, 
typically landholders, um, but she points out that there are a lot of working poor in the country and they are absolutely not represented by the National Party. And she talks about how there are a lot of progressive, an increasing number of progressive ex-city type tree changers who are moving to the country and they are not represented by the National Party. And this is one of the reasons why she talks about um, the drift within some rural areas to One Nation in particular, but also to, to more and more independents, for whom she has a lot of sympathy, actually. Yeah. Um, and you can see why. Yeah. Uh, the Cathy McGowan's of this world, you can see exactly what they're doing and exactly what they might be appealing to. And I think one of the other things that she points out, and it's a really interesting distinction, is the way that identity in cities is very much tied up with levels of education mm. and to some extent levels of wealth, whereas identity in regional areas is really tied up to a sense of place. Where do you come from? Where do your parents come from? Where did you grow up? Where have you gone? Where have you come back to? Um, you know, the, the stories that are embedded in the local paddock about, you know, who did what to whom, you know, 25 years ago. Um, all of those things are by reference to place. Uh, and that consequently the politics is much more about place as well. Um, and of course, this is really difficult because the reality is finding economic reasons to see these country towns become economically a lot bigger than they are is quite difficult. But of course, if you want to stay in those places, and in particular, if you want your children to stay in those places, you need to see economic expansion and development. And that's often not happening. Although she points out we should be very careful um, about the pull of sad songs. The reality is that most medium-sized towns are not doing too badly. And uh, Grattan work that we've done this year actually shows that um, income growth in most of these places is not looking too bad at all. And she quotes, actually, she, in, in the book, she quotes um, John Daly of the Grattan Institute. <laughs> and Danielle Wood of the Grattan and Institute. And Danielle Wood of the Grattan <laughs> Institute as well. So a little bit of self-interest there. But um, your, news, your news wasn't great about country towns, but she, uh, she is valiantly making the case for not only how governments can help country towns, but how country towns can help themselves, which I think is a really valuable point. I think that's right. And also this point about the pull of sad songs. That yeah. we can either say, you know, very sad song, this country town is not growing economically that fast and it has lower incomes and it has people with lower levels of education. Or we can say this country town is still growing, people still like living there, some people are moving there. Um, uh, although there are fewer people with um, uh, tertiary education, there's plenty of people who've got um, uh, vocational education. Actually, most of them are employed. They have incredibly high levels of social capital. And by and large, they're happier than people who live in the cities. Mm. But also how immobile they are typically in their strata of society. I cried at the point where she talked about the daughter of the single mum who became a doctor and just how incredibly difficult it was for that girl to become a doctor. Um, and I think that she does a beautiful job of personalising actually everything, all of the big policy ideas with you through beautiful stories, personal stories of people actually living in her little country town. So it's a, it's a really, really great read. It is. And as you say, we haven't got time to talk about it, but she spends a lot of time worrying about this issue about how migrants are seen yeah. in regional areas and particularly the way that she has a lovely example about there's two local doctors and they're both Muslim. Yeah. And everyone says they're fantastic doctors and they're really great blokes. But, you know, like Muslims in general, they're a real problem. <laughs> uh, and, and that distinction of when there aren't enough of a particular group, then you wind up with a problem. Uh, although she has a lovely counterexample of, I think it's young, that has, you know, a mosque and a, and a very successful Islamic community and no one who's in the slightest bit worried about Muslims. Mm. And this issue about how do we get to that critical mass so that enough people know people from different backgrounds that they are no longer afraid. And I think that's a really important issue. We're going to have to move on we because are. we have just been chat, chat, chatting. Mary Beard, um, Women and Power. You should talk about this. Well, look, okay. So, Mary, I, I, Mary this was the first book of this, uh, of this reading list which I read um, three 
feels like three years ago, but it was actually three weeks ago now. Um, and this is a great read. It's a very digestible read um, by a brilliant writer. And I'm sure that most of you are aware of Mary Beard's um, work. So she is a classicist and she, the point of this, it's called a, a manifesto. It's not really a manifesto, actually. It's pretty much just stories about how women have been structurally disempowered by speaking forever. And she talks back, goes back to uh, the Odyssey and she talks about how Penelope is actually forbidden from speaking by her own son. And she gives all of these examples about how, from the classics, about how women were um, never, never spoke and, and the actual, uh, um, the actual language used around someone who speaks in public only ever pertained to a man. And I found this book really interesting because I read it at the time of the Four Corners on the ABC. Who watched that one, the Four Corners on, on the ABC? Okay. What were you doing? Not enough. Of Not enough of you. <laughs> but it was very interesting because Michelle Guthrie, who is our former managing director, spoke on that. Did you watch it, John? No. Okay. So she look. It's got. To, it's got to be said. Michelle Guthrie is not an impressive speaker, and I was watching that with this book in mind, thinking, is it just because I have been taught, because all of us have been taught, that if you're going to speak in public, you need to speak like a man, and she doesn't speak like a man, and so therefore I'm not listening to what she's saying, and I'm judging her on what she actually says rather than. Um, uh, the content of what she says, and I'm I'm imposing an external expectation of how she should say it rather than what she's saying. So for me, that really brought back this book into a very contemporary context. And she writes beautifully. It it doesn't drag. It's it's a you know you can knock it over in an evening really. Yeah. So um, uh, it it is an easy read. Um, although I think a really it does make a series of really powerful points. Um, one and and I think what it's doing is pointing out a lot of our archetypes, which are often subconscious, mm. have these um, assumptions embedded into them, and because they're archetypes, we adopt them as our yes. assumptions. As she points out, you take all of the women who have power in the kind of classical canon, um, you know, Clytemnestra. Um, uh, Medusa, Medea, um, and basically kind of almost by definition any woman who actually wields real power winds up abusing it pretty quickly. Um, uh, and that's the image that we have. Uh, as she points out, you know, the only thing on which women are sort of legitimately allowed to talk is either about the fact, um, uh, if you like, women's issues, mm. things that are particular to women's sectional issues, or things that where women have been victims, but they should not speak about, you know, men's things like, you know, budgets and energy and, you know, transport and other, you know, like serious topics. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think that that's a really important point to make. Um, so you're, you obviously read this, you know, it, um, in, the sh in the shadow of, of that Four Corners episode. So I'd read it a little while ago and I came back to it literally, you know, a few days ago in the shadow of Julie Banks. Oh, absolutely. That's <laughs> um, absolutely. And, and, and watching, you know, that, that now, you know, it is a photograph that is going to be used for decades of her standing up and basically, say, you know, uh, resigning from the party and all of these men leaving. Not allowed to speak. And if you read, if you read Mary Beard's book, which you should, that is all you will be able to think about. And when I came back to this, just to read a couple of pages again, I just all I could think now was Scott Morrison. If you're going to read one of these books, this is probably the one that you actually <laughs> really, really need to read because it it is. I mean, we we don't need to go go into that about the Liberal Party's problem problem with women, um, which has become all too apparent. But this is a really great. Um, uh, sort of bookend to the whole Me Too movement, I think. And uh, we're talking, we know we've learnt a lot about the, the very modern incarnations of sexism and misogyny. And she does a brilliant job of explaining how it has always been thus. Um, and in showing us how it has always been thus, maybe we can actually do something about it. So that takes us to um, Bruce Bashani's book, No Friend But the Mountains. Um, 
Uh, I'll be honest, this is not a very comfortable read. It is, in a sense, it's an easy read. It's beautifully written, as are all the books on the list. Um, it's not um, like it takes you a long time to kind of get from the top of the page to the bottom of the page. It's not like you ever sit there and think, where's my pen? Um, but it is uh, a pretty harrowing read. It's the story, it's the autobiography, essentially, of Baruz Bashani, who is still currently on Manus Island, um, who uh, was in Iran, um, who went to Indonesia, who came on a boat that got turned back and then on another boat that didn't get turned back um, that wound up on Manus Island. Um, be fair to say both of those boat trips are pretty harrowing and then of course it turns out that his life on Manus is even more harrowing. Um, uh, for me, um, this is a book that people are going to be reading in 50 years time at the same time that they're reading the Gulag Archipelago for unfortunately the same reasons. Uh, and it's pretty horrific that that is happening, as it were, on our watch. Uh, and I think it... Uh, um, uh, so it has a, a beautiful, quite stunning introduction written by Richard Flanagan, essentially making that case that this is the Gulag archipelago for our time and worse for our country. Uh, and, you know, for that reason, I'm afraid we are all going to have to read it. Um, it, is, it is a devastating book. Um, the description that he gives of his boat journey before it was intercepted and before he was taken to Manus Island is one of the most terrible things that I have ever read and every single person should read it, including every single person who thinks that offshore detention is a good idea. Um, because it just, it goes back to, I think, factfulness in a way, he's talking about the big, he gives the big numbers of why things are getting better. And this is the very personalised experience of someone who is from the developing world, which is what Hans Rosling talks about, and actually how the reasons why it is still very difficult to live there and, and the most searing uh, in certain cases um, and the most searing reasons and, and examples of why he had to leave. It also ties back, I think, to, um, to democracy because it gives a very good reason for why we should do our very damnedest to hold on to liberal democracy because he comes from a theocracy and he has come to what is supposed, what, we, what is a democracy, but he also talks about the substrata of people, which in our case is, is the asylum seekers. And for me, what is most extraordinary out of all of this is that this, this isn't a book which has been written on WhatsApp and via text message and translated from Farsi. And the extraordinary achievement of that, it's filled with the most beautiful poetry. Um, he gives rise to... Um, Kurdish, he, he, he refers to characters from his sort of Kurdish um, poetical history and he, there are certain um, characters in his book who he gives Kurdish names to and we learn about why they have these names and in the process we get to learn a much deeper, have a much deeper understanding of where he's coming from and not just um, where he is now and which is equally important for making him a human, I think. Um, so I know I said that Scott Morrison should read the Mary Beard book, but I think probably out of all of them and as a, um, as a former Minister for Immigration, he should probably read this book. And I think one of the points that it makes is the, by describing the conditions in Manus Island in, you know, in enormous detail through the eyes of someone who is actually there day in, day out. There's obviously the fact that it's, a, you know, with enormous respect to a former Prime Minister, it is not a very hospitable climate. It's just really hot a lot of the time. Then they're living in incredibly crowded conditions um, with very, very few of the things that Hans Rosling would describe as the um, uh, things that mark a level four existence. But then, and I think this is the point that, I, that really I found incredibly disturbing. This is the part that's the indictment is a whole series of things that essentially just make people's lives on that island infinitely more miserable than they might be otherwise. Just so for the they, sake of it. they ban any form of game. So the prisoners are not allowed to play 
anything that is a game. They're not allowed to play cards. They're not allowed to play chess. They're not allowed to do, you know, basically pick up pebbles from the ground and play games with them. And when you remember that play is actually an incredibly basic human emotion, not just activity, emotion, you know, that's pretty horrific. We are going to take all of the people on Manus Island, we're going to forbid them from play. And then he talks about, he's a political scientist by trade, he talks about what he calls the kyriarchical system, the, 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 essentially the power structures on Manus Island, from the rhinos, as he calls them, the Australian guards, the Papus, as they're known, um, so essentially the Papua New Guinean guards, who are clearly essentially a status lower than the Australian guards. And then, of course, there are the asylum seekers themselves, who are very much on a lower status, and the way that those three levels of power interact with each other. Um, this is not a book you are going to forget. There are lots of books, unfortunately, that we do forget. This is not going to be one of them. Can I move on to our last book, yes. which is another book that you are absolutely not going to forget. Um, this is Flames by Robbie Arnott, who we are very delighted is in the audience down, uh, <laughs> down here. He has flown up especially from Hobart today to be with us for tonight. And look, I think after all of the heavy reading, Scott Morrison deserves a bit of a break. And <laughs> what a joyous break this is. I'm going to just read you, because we haven't read anything really yet, um, just the first paragraph if I can. It's, it gets you from the, from the beginning. Our mother returned to us two days after we spread her ashes over Notley Fern Gorge. She was definitely our mother, but at the same time, she was not our mother at all. Since her dispersal among the fronds of Notley, she'd changed. Now her skin was carpeted by spongy, verdant moss and thin tendrils of common, filmy fern. Six large fronds of tree fern had sprouted from her back and extended past her waist in a layered peacock tail of vegetation. And her hair had been replaced by cascading fronds of lawn-coloured maidenhair, perhaps the most delicate fern of all. This kind of thing was not, was, wasn't uncommon in our family. <laughs> and, and so as you can gather from that, it, it's a, a magic realism book um, which is also a ripping good yarn and I haven't finished this one either sadly Robbie I'm halfway through this one but so far we've come across um, the most incredible characters a young boy who is the son of this woman growing maiden hair for hair now who comes back the women in his family come back for a couple of days after they die and he doesn't want that to happen to his sister so he starts to build her a coffin. His sister's alive, but he starts to build her a coffin. Well, he tries to. And the problem is the coffin maker who's published the definitive work on coffin making in Tasmania says that he doesn't want to help him because, you know, he's an ignoramus. So there's a, you get the correspondence between the two until the coffin maker admits that he has a long-standing difference of opinion with the Australian tax office. Uh, and consequently, he is prepared to help him for a small fee. <laughs> So we get that, and then we get the um, the tuna hunter who does what all tuna hunters do, who befriends a seal pup, and the two of them go hunting tuna together for many, many years. Um, and it is it is the most exquisite book, and I, I can't speak to the end of it. Have you finished this one, John? I have, but I we shouldn't speak to we the won't, end of this We book. won't speak to the end of it. No, of course we can't. But it is, it's set in Tasmania. Um, it is continuing a, a, what has become a rich theme lately of uh, magic realism in, in Australian literature, which is absolutely yeah. stunning. If you think about Peter Carey and Oscar and Lucinda, if you think about Eucalyptus by Murray Bale, um, you know, these are books where... It, the, the sort of wonder of where your imagination can take you is is one of the points of the whole exercise. And, and there's a kind of joy and love to this. And, yeah, look, it's been a pretty tough year um, for most people in, politi uh, in politics at the risk of a little chronocentrism. Um, uh, I can see that a lot of people in politics this year over Christmas will need something which is just really good fun. And despite the fact that it starts with a ghost who, you know, comes back only for a few days and then almost dies again in a second way and then, you know, proceeds on to somebody who wants to make a coffin. Despite that somewhat macabre uh, and, you know, slightly death-focused um, subject matter, it is nevertheless a, 
a joyous, riotous novel that I hope will leave everyone who reads it with a smile on their face. From a first-time writer, and for that reason alone, you should all buy it. This is the, <laughs> this is the one that you need to buy for your family and friends. Buy this one for that person who you think needs a bit of schooling <laughs> and then and then buy this one buy this one for your mum buy this one for your sister and give it to them because it, it is an ex astounding work from a really beautiful um, incredibly gifted new voice in Australian literature and so we should all make make sure to support that support Robbie now you have the also rans well no they're not the also rans these are the ones for people who well I suppose no I, I don't think that people who fail to get into politics are also rants. Some of them are wise. <laughs> um, so this is for the wonks. Um, so the people who have chosen not to go into politics but nevertheless spend a lot of their time in policy. I might add that not surprisingly, therefore, this is the list that is fought over particularly hard <laughs> by Grattan Institute staff. And we've got a couple of things for wonks. Um, we have Nicholas Gruen's um, The Irredeemable in Pursuit of the Insatiable, which is an essay he wrote for Inside Story. Um, which talks about the way that we have this dichotomy these days between, well, you've either got free market or you've got government intervention. And Nicholas points out, look, it's sort of, there is a middle Aristotelian ground here. Uh, it's albeit rather more complicated uh, and talks about, well, how do we kind of work through that middle ground um, and come to better solutions. Uh, we have a book by Bree Lee called Eggshell Skull. Uh, so she was a, a judge's associate um, uh, and she kind of, tells, I think, a, a fantastic fly-on-the-wall story about how our judicial system, how our criminal system, particularly as it applies to crimes of sexual violence, how that really works in practice. That's not something that many of us experience, but the reality is there are plenty of people who do. Uh, and understanding how that world works and, more to the point, how we could do a lot better is important. And it's tied to her own personal story of her coming to terms with um, what's happened, what happened to her in the past and how essentially working through this motivates her to make really tough decisions about um, uh, talking about her past and, and acting on it. Uh, then we have a piece by Jeff Borland and Michael Coley called Are Robots Taking Our Jobs? So there are any number of books this year about how robots are going to take your jobs. And this is the, one of the extremely few articles that says, just before we get too excited about this, why don't we look at the numbers? A little Hans Rosling-like. And it goes through the numbers and says, if the robots are taking our jobs, they're not doing a very good job of it. And then it also does a lovely job of going through the history, the now very long history of people saying the robots are going to take our jobs and as a consequence, you know, no one's going to have any work uh, and pointing out that we have a good 250 years of experience of this and so far the Luddites were wrong. As a, as a journalist, I like the sound of that book. That sounds like a good one. I'll get that one. That's, uh, and it's, a, it's an article. It's, it's very accessible. Um, uh, then we have Paul Tucker talking about unelected power, the quest for legitimacy in central banking and the regulatory state. That sounds like a page turner. Yeah, well, it is for wonks. I mean, like, what could be more exciting than central banking? Um, and the way that central bankers have too much power and he's a bit uncomfortable about that. Uh, then we have Peter Mayer's All Work, No Stay. So this is a piece he wrote for SBS, and it's slightly it's there for the wonks who kind of love beautiful data um, presentation because it projects a whole series of pieces of data and analyses about migration in Australia, corrects a lot of misconceptions on the way through, um, and in particular talks about the way that um, temporary migrants are a growing feature of Australia's migrants who are here, in fact, often for quite a long time, and we need to understand how that works. Uh, and then finally, we have Brian Kaplan, The Case Against Education, Why the Education System is a Waste of Time and Money. Now, that's not necessarily on the recommended <coughs> reading list for every vice-chancellor, apart from those who have strong stomachs. Um, but it's, a, it's essentially arguing that a lot of education is basically just signalling rather than anything that improves anybody's capabilities. Um, I don't know that I agree with every line in that book by any stretch of the imagination, but it's a powerful case. 
And one of the purposes of this list is to give you a, a taste of where we think some intellectual currents are going. And I think it is fair to say that for some people, they're probably not getting that much out of higher education other than pure signalling. Uh, and so it asks that difficult question about, well, you know, where are the lines here and how much is too much of a good thing? That is a very fulsome list. And can I congratulate you and all the Grattan staff on making your way through all of those because that is a monumental achievement. Thank you very much. <laughs> can I just do a couple of quick thank yous? Um, firstly, to those at Grattan Institute who um, put all of, helped put all of this together. So in the first inst instance, that's all of the Grattan Institute staff, I think, um, uh, and literally everybody. Um, but in particular... Um, those who worked hardest to put it together and did all of the kind of hardcore administration, not least of which is getting John to make up his mind. Um, uh, so in particular to Carmela Chivers, Owen Elmsley, uh, sorry, Owen Emsley and James Ha. Um, we've already welcomed um, Robbie Arnott. Uh, thank you for your book, which as you can see, I certainly enjoyed and I hope that lots of other people here enjoy them. Thanks to the other authors, without whom there would be no list, um, Hans Rosling, Yashamunk, um, Gabrielle Chan, Bruce Pashani, Mary Beard. Um, thanking you to Sarah Slade and the State Library staff. And we're looking forward to the 2019 series of policy pitch events. Uh, and finally, thank you to everybody here in the audience. It's been great having you here. Now, before I finish, two things that I have to do. Firstly, to say there will be drinks and nibbles straight after this event. If you come on upstairs, if you don't know exactly where you're going, follow the signs. If you can't find the signs, follow the crowd. Uh, and um, as if the drinks and the nibbles are not sufficient attraction, the books will be on sale. Uh, and readings will be happy to help you. And then finally, to thank Madeline Morris. Um, this is the biggest thing we ask anyone from outside Grattan to do. Uh, inside Grattan, of course, the staff are paid up to work in the salt mines. Um, but but uh, to ask someone to read six books, to come and talk to them, um, is a huge ask. Thank you. Um, uh, for any people here who weren't already convinced about Madeline's um, extraordinary intellectual breadth and ability to get across incredibly complex stuff and then synthesise it back, which, you know, is exactly what journalists have to do. Um, I think you've demonstrated your craft oh. extraordinarily tonight. It's been such a pleasure talking. Uh, and um, thank you very much. We really appreciate it. Oh, and thank you for getting me to read them. It's been <laughs> lovely. Thank you. Thank you all very much for coming, uh, and we look forward to seeing you at lots of Grattan events next year. Um, uh, a quick thanks to all of our sponsors and to all those who donate every year to Grattan. Um, without you, none of this would happen. Thank you very much, and uh, a very happy um, uh, summer reading to you all. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate, grattan.edu.au. This has been a Grattan Institute podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes.